You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. build into a Christ-honoring community that actively grows in our hatred towards sin, not tolerating sin, but also grow into a community that knows how to confess our sins humbly before God and before one another. You know, when I get to heaven, there are many questions that I want to ask about the Bible. Did God really create in six days, and it will be one of them? Where does Esau's wife come from in Genesis 4, 17? Dr. Allison, if you have an answer, I would love to hear it. <laughs> who are the Nephilim in Genesis 6? Who are these men of old, these giants of men? Even as we look at the book of Job, who are the sons of God who present themselves before him and his throne? And lastly, but definitely not least, who are, or maybe even what are, what do they represent? What are the, who are the 24 elders in the book of Revelation? I have my ideas, but they may not be true. You know, but beyond all these questions, there is one that reigns supreme. If Job was truly innocent, what was the root cause of Job's pain and suffering? What was the root cause of Job's pain and suffering? And I believe that the root cause of Job's suffering can be traced not to an answer, but to a question. And we see that question actually in Job 35 verse 2. It says this, Elihu or Elihu, however you want to pronounce it. I say Elihu, so please bear with me if you don't pronounce it that way. He asks this question. He says, do you think it is just... When you say, I am righteous before God, do you think it is just when you say, I am righteous before God? Last week, Pastor Nick highlighted four symptoms of self-deception. He talked about blaming, comparing, justifying, and minimizing. Today, we'll consider the sin of self-righteousness by looking at Elihu's confrontation with Job. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. We thank you, God, that you invite us this morning to do two things. One is to acknowledge the ways in which we are acting or in which we are living as self-righteous people. God, by your spirit, I pray that you would illuminate dark places in our lives. I pray that your word will reach crevices that we dare not look into to show us, God, where we are living as self-righteous people. But then, God, in the same breath, I also ask that your spirit would be kind enough to remind us that there is no self-righteousness that can be obtained. There's no righteousness that can be obtained apart from the righteousness found in Jesus. Father, would you do a good work in us this morning and, and allow both of those realities to be made manifest today? May we see our sin, but may we also see our Savior as glorious, as good, as being the provision for any means we try to earn before your throne. Father, we cast down our crowns before you. We put down our humility before you. We take off our mask. 
and we bear ourselves before you and your word. Deal gently with us, but Father, don't allow us to leave this place unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's review the context of the book of Job. Job is a man who's upstanding in every way. He experiences suffering. He experiences suffering, excuse me, due to his righteous living. And for his own purposes, God allows Satan to tempt Job, but he doesn't allow Satan to touch his soul or to kill him, as Job 1.12 states. And listen, Satan does his worst. He nearly destroys Job's life. Job loses everything of earthly and maternal value, material value. Job's family is destroyed. His sons and daughters are destroyed by a cosmic circumstance. His wife encourages him to turn his back on God. His seemingly great health ends up failing him with boils and aches and pains, uncurable diseases that no one has an answer for. And even as a friends accuse him of being unfaithful to God. I love how the Bible uh, says it, though, in, in Job chapter 1, verse 22. It says, yet in all of this, through it all, it says that Job maintains his innocence. For it says, in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Now, here's someone asking, well, Pastor James, I've always heard that Job was completely innocent. I've always thought that Um, Why are you using Job as an example to discuss this topic of sin as self-righteousness? Well, before we go any further, let's discuss three important qualifiers. Number one, let's be honest and open here. The character of Elihu is highly debated. And the question they ask often, scholars, is, is he a friend or is he a foe? It's not clearly known. If he's, those who say that he's a foe, they say this, that, well, Elihu, he was the final and youngest speaker. And he is simply speaking out of place. They say in his youth and, his, and in his arrogance, he wrongly accuses Job of things that God himself does not accuse him of. And then finally, they say that God doesn't reprimand Elihu alongside Job and his three friends at the end of the narrative. And because he, Elihu, does not receive reprimation, re- reprimand from God, then... His sin was so egregious that God didn't even bother reprimanding him. So blatant. If he's a friend, those who are in the friend category that says he's actually trying to help here, these are what they would say. Elihu, well, he speaks openly and freely as a spokesman of God. Despite his age and his youthful zeal, he provides the most godly wisdom and insight for Job within the entire book. And finally... God doesn't refute Elihu in the end because what's spoken about Job is true, it is right, and it is good. The second qualifier we have to identify before we go any further is this. While Job was innocent, he's not perfect. He isn't Jesus. I think a lot of times when we look at this character of Job, We want to place him in a place that he's not meant to be placed within. There's only one perfect and holy and righteous Savior, and his name is Jesus. Let's also not ignore the fact that God does reprimand Job. He does spend two and a half chapters 
correcting Job and his ways before him. And while we might not fully understand why God decides to reprimand Job, he does so for a specific reason. And he does so as the holy and righteous God that he is. The third qualifier we need to look at is this, is that Job does receive rebuke from Elihu and God without refuting neither of them. Job listens to what they have to say. Unlike his friends, right, who spent chapters upon chapters of giving defenses and reasons before Job in his circumstances, Job doesn't do that with Elihu. He also doesn't do that with God. You know, here, one of the things I think that we want to talk about here and want to realize is that um, suffering is a lot in our life, is, a, is not always just due to what is happening to us. Suffering in our life is also due to what God wants to reveal to us. It's much like the, 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 one of the main arguments in my home is the toothpaste in the bathroom. I look at the toothpaste and I look at my kids and say, why are you throwing that away? There's still toothpaste in there. And they say, Dad, what are you talking about? I'm like, wait, just, just let me show you. Let me show you. I'm a, a kid from Detroit, Michigan, so I know how to squeeze toothpaste out of a little tube. So what you do is you go at the bottom and you fold it over once and you squeeze down. And you fold it over again and squeeze. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Am I the only one that does this? Okay. And you keep doing it. Why? Because as you squeeze and as you fold, you always find something left in that tube. See, suffering is a lot like that. God doesn't mean our suffering to destroy us or to harm us or to show us how bad we are. But what, a lot of times what God does is he allows suffering in our lives to show us what's in our hearts. The hidden things, the unspoken things, the unrevealed things, the dark things, if you will. He uses these things to show us what's in our hearts so that we can bring it before God in both confession and also in repentance. So who is this character, Elihu? Why is he so important to the narrative? If you haven't caught on already, I am definitely of those who say that he is a friend to Job, and I'm going to hopefully show you why today. I love what um, Andrew Knowles says in his book, The Bible God, he, he quotes this about Elihu. He says, Elihu is a young man who's been listening to the conversation between Job and his friends, and as the youngest, he finally has an opportunity to share his thoughts and insights. Now a young man steps forward who has been waiting for his chance to speak, and he is angry. He's angry with Job for being so self-righteous and angry with, the, with his friends for being so dim. Job 32, 12 says, not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Elihu believes that, what God, that God is not as remote as, God, as Job claims. God speaks in a variety of ways, through dreams and visions, for example, or through healing. And Job should be aware of being so scornful of God's justice. Job 34, 12 reads this way, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong. Job and his friends are in danger of reducing God, calling him to account for his actions as though he is just another human being. But God is different. 
Job 36, 26 puts it this way, how great is God? He's beyond our understanding. Knowles ends his quote with this by saying this. He says, the question Elihu raises is not why has God done this to us, but what is God doing in us? He changes the game. He changes the question. He changes the question from why to what? And may I add that if you are in a season of suffering, if you are in a season of unprecedented pressure and maybe even oppression in your life, if you are in a season that you don't exactly know why you are in the difficult circumstances that you are in, I would also encourage you to change the question from why to what. God, what are you doing? What are you up to? What, what do you want me to see that I'm not willing or maybe I'm not able to see? By God's grace, hopefully as we look at the narrative of Job, we will be encouraged to change that question from a why to a what this morning. Notice Elihu's message here. He quotes Job, and I don't have time to go through all of it, so I tried to provide some means of explanation, but he has three, he has four different speeches that he actually speaks to Job. In the first set of speeches, he says these type of things. He says, um, he, he quotes Job and the things that Job has said. Job is quote, as quoted as saying to his friends, I am pure. I'm without sin. I am clean and free from guilt. But yet God has found fault within me. In the second speech, he says, um, I am innocent and I'm righteous. God denies me justice. I am right. I am guiltless. In Elihu's third speech, the one we'll be looking at today, we see it even in chapter, verse 2. Another version puts it this way, I will be cleared by God. You see the question he asks in verse 15, what profit is it to me and what do I gain by not sinning? And then in the fourth speech in Job chapter 36, we see these words, you, God, have done wrong. So for me, and I'm going to come from this standpoint, the sin of Job is evident. It's the sin of self-righteousness. But before we talk about the sin of self-righteousness, we first have to understand what is it? What is self-righteousness? And by its very definition, self-righteousness is having or showing the attitude of someone who strongly believes in the righteousness of his, his or her own actions or opinions. It is someone who, uh, by, by their very attitude, They they show that they strongly believe in the righteousness of his or her own own actions or attitudes. Listen, I am a self-righteous person. And listen, I don't like to admit it, but I am. And I've seen it so many different clear uh, times in my life, but none clearer within the last week or so. You know, I have been traveling a lot doing um, a lot of traveling on this thing called the Leadership Collective with a couple of other pastors who I've grown really close and a friend to. And because of my travels, sometimes my travels get canceled. And I love traveling through one airlines in particular. Don't judge me on this, but it's okay. Southwest Airlines. I just like to fly Southwest. I don't know why, but I do. Maybe because I can choose my own seat. Um, maybe that's the reason. I don't know. But in one particular trip, my trip got delayed or it got canceled. I can't remember. And I got some funds. A lot of funds, like some extra money that I wasn't attributed to have. And for the last three or four, uh, actually three or four months, I've been trying to go online and use these funds to help me and my family travel for our spring vacation. 
And I'm looking through the guidelines and I'm looking through the rules and I'm like, man, why? Every time I push the button, I put all my family's information in. I put all of their detail-oriented things that they ask me and then I push the button to purchase and it never goes through. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, there's something wrong with Southwest. They are, man, there's something wrong with this company. So I tried again and I tried again. So finally, I picked up the phone and I called and I said, listen, guys, something's wrong with y'all. I don't know. I've been, I tried this like five, six, seven times. I, I want to use my funds to pay for my family to go on this trip. It, it, the money that I have is, is, is greater than the money that is needed to go on this trip. What is the problem? And the lady kindly in my arrogant, she kindly said, well, sir, did you look at the fine print? I said, yeah, I looked at everything. What are you talking about? She said, no, did you look at the, the fine print? I said, no, I guess not. She said, well, these funds are only designated for you. <laughs> So that means you have all these funds, but you can't transfer them to your family members. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess that makes sense, right? I guess that, that makes sense in the, in the day. You know, in the moment, I felt like I was being cheated on, right? That, that something was being held against me, that they were having a wrong against me, but the problem was not necessarily them, it was me. I didn't clearly understand. I didn't read the fine print. I didn't clearly understand the details that needed to go forward for me to obtain the thing that I desire. You know, there are three signs of self-righteousness that we see in this text. The first is this. We see how Job questions the validity of God's goodness. Self-righteousness always demands a response. Verse 3. We see the, how Job questions the validity of, validity of God's grace. Self-righteousness demands a response, verse 9. And thirdly, we see that self-righteousness questions the validity of God's generosity. It demands a restitution, verse 12. Look at verse 3 with me to the first sign of self-righteousness. It questions the validity of God's goodness. It demands a response. Excuse me, it demands a reward, excuse me. Verse 3 reads as follows, For you ask, what does it profit you? And what benefit comes to me if I do not sin? Now notice with me, Job expects a return from God. He expects something in return. He expects God to reward his obedience. It's a good reminder for us that self-righteousness is to trust in yourself to accomplish only what God, only what can be accomplished by God Himself. Self-righteousness is try is to try to earn God's favor apart from His presence. Self-righteousness is to try and earn God's blessing apart from His Word. Self-righteousness is to try and earn God's best apart from Jesus' atoning blood. Love what Tim Keller said about this. He sent a tweet out earlier this week about this. He says this. He says, Christianity offers a unique view of salvation. We are saved by sheer grace and Christ's work, not ours. We cannot contribute to salvation with moral effort, religious observance, prayers, transform consciousness, etc. A finished salvation is received, not achieved. A finished salvation is received, not achieved. 
Self-righteousness is a lot like an x-ray, right? An x-ray is great because an x-ray will always help you to reveal the problem. It will help you to see what's happening underneath the surface, the skin, underneath the surface of your skin. But x-rays alone can't fix the problem. Can't. You need to have surgery. You need to have a doctor. You need to have someone to come and rectify the problem, not just identify it. Self-righteousness helps identify the problems in our lives, but they are inapt and, and not able to do anything about it. How does Elihu respond to Job's self-righteousness? Look with me in verses 1 through 8. He says these words, I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds high above you. If you sin, how does it affect God? If you multiply your transgressions, what does it do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a person like yourself and your righteousness, a son of man. See the logic that Elihu is speaking here? Elihu responds to Job's self-righteousness by reminding him of the sovereignty of our God. He takes him to, correct, to, to creation. And he has him to look up and to gaze at the heavens. Listen to me. If, if I'm learning the value of this, but if you are having a, a, a moment maybe of, of self-righteousness or not being able to appreciate who God is and, and what he has done in your life, Sometimes the remedy is to just go outside and take a walk. Go, go on a hike. Go outside and just be a part of the beauty and the glory of God's creation. And mind you that we only see partly through the beauty of God's creation in the sense that sin, right, has distorted God's creation, but yet we can still see the beauty even through it being distorted. How good is our God? How glorious is our King? That even though we have chosen sin and we have allowed sin to have its effect, not just in us, but in the very creation that we look at, that despite that, that, the distortion of sin within creation and even within us, there's still glory. There's still beauty. Elihu responds by reminding Job that God is much bigger than him. He reminds him that God is bigger than you. He says these words, if you sin, how does it affect God? If you multiply your transgressions, what does it do to him? If you are righteous, what, what do you give him? Or what does he receive apart from your hand? You know, there's a story of the great Muhammad Ali. He got on an airplane and was sitting in first class, and the flight attendant came to him and asked him to buckle his seatbelt as they were nearing takeoff. The flight attendant came back, and Mr. Ali had not buckled up, so she kindly asked him once more, Mr. Ali, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt. She came back a third time, right before the plane was about to taxi down the runway, and Ali had not buckled his seatbelt yet. She asked once again, Mr. Ali, we can't move until you buckle your seat. 
And Ali responded only as Ali could. I don't need to buckle my seatbelt. Superman don't need a seatbelt. The flight attendant was frustrated with Ali's comments and antics. She looked him squarely in the face and said, yeah, Superman doesn't uh, need an airplane either, so buckle your seat. (laughs) It's a good reminder for us that a man has to know his limitations. We need to know and, and, and own the limitations that God has placed within our life. Don't live like an autonomous person. Don't live like a person who believes you can live without God, you can make it without God, you can do science about, apart from God, you can worship from God apart from God. You can live or create apart from the hand of God. Listen, if you live in such a way, you will be rudely awakened. So let me ask you, do you believe that you have limitations? Do you seek to live within those limitations? Do you live your life in light of your limitations? Do you allow your limitations to point you to the provision of God or the provision of yourself? Does your lifestyle reflect your dependence upon God or does it reflect your dependence upon yourself? Look at with me in verse 9 for the second sign of self-righteousness. Not only does self-righteousness question the validity of God's goodness, it demands a reward. Self-righteousness also questions the validity of God's grace. It demands a response. Look with me at verse 9 says this, people cry out because of severe oppression. They shout for help because of the power of the Almighty, or of the mighty, excuse me. It reminds us that self-righteousness is to demand God to answer questions that he's not willing to provide an answer for, and then wrongly accuse God for being unjust and unfair due to his silence. Say that again. Self-righteousness is to demand God to answer questions that he's not willing to provide an answer for, and then wrongly accuse God of being unjust and unfair due to his silence. You know, there's a story about a man who visited the doctor's office one day. He was in excruciating pain everywhere. Everywhere he turned, he was having aches and pains. The doctor asked him where it hurt. He told him all over. The doctor asked him to touch his shoulder. The man did and immediately hollered in pain. The doctor told him to touch his knee and the man screamed in pain. The doctor then asked him to touch his forehead. The man did and he yelled in agony again. The doctor said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Let's try one more thing. Touch your toes. The patient touched his toes and grimaced in pain. Oh, doc, everywhere I touch, I hurt, the man said. The doctor examined him and said, hey, no wonder you've been hurting everywhere. You've got a dislocated finger. (laughs) It's a good reminder for us that many of us have experienced this phenomenon where everywhere we turn in life, it seems to be painful, right? You leave one church and come come to this church, 
You leave one job and you go to another job. You try one budget and now you're doing another budget. And everywhere you turn, it seems to be painful. But only due to one specific area of hurt that is radiating into every other area of life. See, the problem that Job had was not necessarily a problem that stemmed from oppression. The problem that Job had was his view and understanding of God. So how does Elihu respond to Job's demand, demanding a response from God? Elihu reminds Job that God's grace is extended to all, especially those who seek it. Look with me in verses 10 and 11. Look at Elihu's response. He says, but no one asked, where is God my maker who provides with us with songs in the night, who gives us more understanding than the animals of the earth and who makes us more wiser than the birds of the sky? I love this because Elihu points, <clears throat> points Job back to God's grace. He said that God, our maker, he provides, he gives, and he makes. Good reminder for us this morning that God's grace is getting what you don't deserve. God's grace is receiving what you don't qualify for. God's grace is obtaining what you couldn't earn on your own. And God's grace is achieving what you couldn't achieve on your own. This is what the meaning of God's grace is. You know, back in my home church in Detroit, you used to always hear about the old folk of the church, if you will. And Jolly Elders, please don't take offense to that. But the older people in our church, they used to always talk about God's grace and mercy. And as a young fellow, I just couldn't understand it. What's so big about, what's so great about God's grace and mercy? As you get older and as you learn, and as you receive grace, you appreciate it. There's no other place that I've seen grace more evidently portrayed than last week at the bowling alley. I went with my kids to bowl. My daughter had an end of the year party, a basketball party for her team. And uh, they were like five rolls down. And since we were there, we said, hey, we're gonna take our boys bowling. So we bought the things we needed, bought the lane and all that stuff. And we had to bowl a quick game because people were coming in behind us. So the boys, my boys got the ball, and they started rolling it down. Boom! And you know what happened, right? Went into the gutter. <laughs> oh, Dad, I got it this time. Hey, listen, you got to look, look at the arrows. I got it, Dad. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Boom! Gutter. Happened like at least eight or nine times. So finally, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and do what my mom did for me because they have these things called bumpers, right? You know about bumpers in the bowling alley? where they put up these guards, right? And they put up these guards, and magically, my youngest, Luke, he gets up there, and he didn't notice the bumpers. He just, he's just trying to get, he's like, Dad, I'm gonna get a strike. I'm gonna get a strike. I said, all right, son, get a strike. He doesn't notice the bumpers, but he rolls it straight towards the gutter. <laughs> and somehow, boom, it hits it, and ricochets to the other side. And then, boom, it hits it to the other side, and it keeps going in a zigzag motion. And all of a sudden, he goes down and hits the first pin, and guess what? He gets a strike. And he goes, um, if you know Luke, oh my gosh. It was a party to be had and to be seen in that moment. How did that happen, right? But what needed to happen for that strike to happen, right? Someone had to provide assistance. Someone had to provide 
guided. Someone had to help him in ways that he could not help himself. Those guards had to be put up so that even though he bowled that ball straight towards the gutter, it didn't go in the gutter. It went in a direction that God had planned and God had designed. This is the essence of what grace is in our life. Beloved, when you bowl that perfect game and you get that 200 score, listen, it's, it's only by the grace of God. When you see success in your family, when you see success in your marriage, it's only by the grace of God. When you get a promotion and when, when people recognize you, it's only by the grace of God because God has infiltrated and put barriers around your life that even when you threw the ball the wrong way and even when you are inaccurate, God's grace redirects our mistakes so that we might have success. Listen, that's a hallelujah right there. That's a praise God right there. That's a thank you Jesus right there. That God takes our mistakes, he takes our failures, he takes our shortcomings, and he makes something better from it. That's what grace entails. That's what grace is. Beloved, do not grow weary of God's grace. Do not grow weary of God's grace. His grace is sufficient for you. It's complete for you. It is what you need in this life. You can't, make, you can't do anything in this life without the grace of God. We see in verses 12 through 16 why God does not respond to the cries of the people. Look with me in verses 12 through 16. We see the third sign of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness questions the validity of God's generosity. It demands a restitution. It demands a restitution. Look with me in verses 12 through 16. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil people. Indeed, God does not listen to empty cries, and the Almighty does not take note of it. How much less when you complain that you do not see him, that your case is before him, and you are, um, you are waiting for him. But now, because God's anger does not punish and he does not pay attention to transgression, Job opens his mouth in vain and multiply words without knowledge. Notice here that three reason why, Elihu provides three reasons why God doesn't respond to the cries of the people. Number one is because of their pride. Verse 12 says, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Number two is because of their wrong motives. Verse three, it says, indeed, God does not listen to empty cries, and the Almighty does not take note of it. This term, empty cries, refers to their wrong motives. And then lastly, verse 14, we see the lack of patience and trust. How much less when you complain that you do not see him, and that your case is before him, and you are waiting for him. So what's Job's response to God's inactivity? Look with me in verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16, it says, But now, because God's anger does not punish and he does not pay attention to transgression, Job opens his mouth in vain and multiply words without knowledge. I love this anonymous quote that I saw this week. It says, Knowledge feeds pride and it comes out as self-righteousness. Knowledge feeds our pride and it comes out as self-righteousness. Righteousness. 
Notice here that Job is accused in the same way that he first accused God. He is accused of speaking in vain and then without knowledge. In the same way, when God confronts Job, God confronts Job with this same message. And, 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 and he says it here in Job chapter 40, verse 1, and then 6 through 8. Listen to how God confronts Job. He says, the Lord answered Job. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then the Lord answered Job, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to do what? To justify yourself. To justify yourself. Church family, this is a good reminder for us and encouragement for us to be careful of our words. To be careful of our words. It's also a good reminder for us, as we often say, that our view of God determines our pursuit of God. That how we view God determines how we will ultimately pursue him. There's a tale of a woman who went on a gossip spree shedding lies about another woman. It brought misery and anger, agony into that woman's life. And later it was found out that the tale was not true. And the woman who bore it, who shared the lies, went to a sage, an older saint, and asked them, what shall I do? The sage said, take a pillow of feathers and scatter them all around town. So she took a pillow of feathers and she scattered them all around and up and down the streets of the city. And then she came back to the sage and asked, now what shall I do? And the sage told her, gather them all up again. <laughs> she replied, well, the wind has blown them all over. I couldn't find any of them. Then he said, nor can you ever get back any of the words that you said. <laughs> See, when we say a thing, you can't pull it back. You can't unsay it, nor can you make atonement for the hurt that it has caused. In our text today, we see three signs or three symptoms of self-righteousness. Number one, they believe that they can manipulate God. They can make God do what they want him to do, what they want them to do. Number two, they believe that they can demand God to act. And number three, they believe they can speak vain words against God. They believe they can speak vain words against God. Soldier and Carlisle, the, the sin of self-righteousness pertains to us all. It, it pertains to every single one of us under the sound of my voice. But here's the good news. We don't have to seek our own righteousness apart from God's provision. You do not have to seek your own righteousness apart from God's Provision. Listen to the words of Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. It says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. 
And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Live, Soldier Church Carlisle, when we live and when we exemplify the spirit of self-righteousness, we are denying the reality of our need for a Savior. We are denying the reality of God's provision. And we are denying the fact that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. He is our righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. Thank you that you are our God and our King. We thank you that we don't have to seek our own righteousness apart from the provision that you've already provided through your Son. It's to him that we pay homage. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that your grace keeps us, that your great grace motivates us, that your grace corrects us. We thank you for the grace that you've given us most clearly at the cross of Calvary, that while we were yet sinners, God, you died for us, the guilty for the guiltless, the unrighteous, We're given righteousness by the blood of your son, and we praise you for that. Father, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who has not accepted you, has not willfully submitted to the righteousness that you provide through Jesus, I pray that you would touch their heart. You would convict them of sin, God, and you would let them see the need that they have for Jesus today. The need to repent of their sins and to believe in our hearts that, God, you raised your son from the dead so that they may be saved. God, we ask for salvation. We don't just come to gather to worship, but we gather to see a miracle. The miracle of you turning an enemy into a son. May that happen even now. In the hearts and minds of your people, as only you can allow. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the south end of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at soldiercarlisle.com. God bless.